You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. back to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, it's not delivery, it's McLargehuge. Jeff McLargehuge, that is. That's right. How we doing? Are you good? Hey, yeah, man, I'm good. I like those DiGiorno pizza commercials. That is just like amazing marketing. Hey, do you like fresh pizza? Well, <laughs> fresh pizza is garbage. You should get it frozen. So much better. So much it's better. It's the frozen pizza that makes you wish you had Domino's. <laughs> I haven't I haven't had a frozen pizza in I don't even I can't even tell you how long. That's how long. Yeah. That's a long time. My oven doesn't work like the oven part of the oven. So I have like a confection oven, but like buying those frozen pizzas they just don't fit. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you'd have to eat it and like you'd have to cut the slices out ahead of time. Yeah. Like eat- so, like, uh, you know, we talked about this months ago. Like, during the beginning of the pandemic, we all learned a bunch of new skills, whether we're good at yes. them or not. And, you know, I started making pizza. Mm-hmm. And then the other day, my friend Christina on Facebook uh, had posted something about English muffin pizzas. And I was like, ooh, I'm going to update my grocery list because I haven't made English muffin pizzas in forever. It's a lot easier than making your own pizza, you know? Yeah. So I have, <laughs> I'm such a dingus. I have a, like a confection oven slash air fryer kind of a deal. So yep. I take the four English muffins or two English muffins and halves and yes. overload them with cheese and, and tomato sauce. And I put them in and cheese is funny. When it melts, it changes shape. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does indeed, and, and it spreads like a liquid. Oh, it sure does. And I put the English muffins in the uh, – well, you have the flap, like, plate that goes in the uh, yep. toaster oven. And then you also have, like, the grid kind of a deal, yeah. I guess, with, like, doing steaks or whatever. And yeah. and then you have, like, the netted basket, which is for the air fryer part. Right. Well, guess which one of the three I decided to put the <laughs> – You used the netted basket, I didn't sure you? did, Jeff. And oh, how long did it take you to clean that up? I'm not done yet. And <laughs> yeah, they all like, like all the cheese was like dripped down through it. It looked like a bunch of stalactites like or a horror movie or something. Yeah, it was. And they're rock freaking solid too because the, <laughs> it's just, yeah. I'm sorry, dude. That's, I don't mean to laugh, but. Oh, no, I'm telling this story specifically so you can laugh. I mean, it's a, uh, it, it, it is a comedy podcast. We are trying to get people to laugh. Yes, that's true. I'm more than willing so, to have people laugh at my own dingling. English muffin pizza extravaganza. Yeah. Look, guys. How'd they taste? Bill's a ding dong. They're good. They're good enough. You know what I mean? It's, that's, a, that's more of a snacky thing than a meal thing, you know? For sure. Yeah. My pizza that I make, 
my pandemic pizza is way better. But the English muffin pizzas, you know, they're supposed to be quick and low maintenance. They're not supposed to take up a Sunday afternoon cleaning your kitchen. Uh, right. But here we are. Yeah. My pizza game has gotten strong. <laughs> I make pizza now once a week. Oh. Um, either Friday nights or Sundays. And it depends on when I make the I make the dough ahead of time. I make the sauce ahead of time. To go from dough and sauce to a full-on pizza takes about 25 minutes. Yep. And another 16 or so minutes in the oven, it's all done. And I do two big pizzas every every week. So, it's, and it comes out very good. It's very, very good. Well, whenever I'm up there in a couple of weeks, I, uh, I expect pizza, Jeff. You will be getting pizza, Bill. Excellent. I will show you how to make it and everything. <laughs> how to make it the way I do. So... Uh, that won't be necessary. Oh, yeah. I'll just be eating. You'll have to, I'll just be you'll have to borrow somebody's oven. But <laughs> I can make it in my confection oven once I clean the basket. I, I don't think I'm going to be having french fries for a little bit. I'll be having mm. cheese fries, whether, <laughs> whether I like it or not. All right. But before we get the show started, hey, I got a trivia question for you about something I will probably never legally wear because I oh, suck. Okay. A chef's hat, as we see them, the big white hats there. Uh, yep. They are actually called a toque, which is the French word for... Um, it's also the caveman word for Ringo Starr. Yes. <laughs> That's a toque. Yeah. But uh, you know how there's a bunch of like little folds on the top of a, of a chef's hat? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Those are actually specific. There is a specific amount, and it stands for something, too. Oh. How many folds in a toque or a chef's hat, and what do they stand for? And I, you know what? And I, I kind of picked this one for you, Jeff, simply because I know you, your your whole family owned a restaurant back in the 80s. So I figured you'd know this one. Yes. Well, yes. Ta-ha. And, and touche on you because at the restaurant that my family owned that I grew up in, we barely wore gloves. <laughs> so uh, our hats were of the baseball variety. And, All right. So, so. no guess I'm going to say, right? No, no guess till the end, and I'm hoping you'll forget you asked the question by then. So we'll see. Suffer. All right, but this is the week beginning, August the 9th, and my extensive record-keeping shows me that it is your turn to start this week. All right. Well, August 9th, 1903. I don't know if he's the very first guy that was pretty much a, like a weapons broker slash inventor, but Robert Fulton, the father of the modern steam engine or steam-powered boat, Test his steam his steam paddle boat in France. Now he before he came to the United States, he tried to to sell this idea around Britain and France, and test his steam paddle boat on the River Seine in France, and it sinks to the bottom. <laughs> so toque is the French word for hat. What is the French word for hunk of shit? <laughs> yeah, for Fulton. Yes, uh, Fulton. Yeah. The Fulton. Hulk, uh, Hulk of sinking shit at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, th- I think it was one of those, like, he's like, ta-da! And then, <laughs> uh, down it goes, you know. Which, that's how I imagine it in my mind. I don't know if it was actually that way. But he ended up leaving France uh, and going back to Britain and trying to sell more of these things in Britain. He made a uh, manually powered submarine, which must have been torture <laughs> to be in. Um, he made a, that worked. Yeah, it, was, it, it was the same day. It was like, yeah, I, exactly. here's, the, yes. here's the steamship. Bloop, 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 bloop. Somebody right, swim for it. It's still moving forward. That's the current pushing the Hulk. Yes. And then ultimately came back to the United States. And in the United States, he was able to sort of sell the idea. And his his style of uh, side paddle steamships started to prowl the waterways in and around the coast of the United States and then the river system as well. 
So ultimately he made it and had a lot of, of interesting and I guess good ideas. He invented the torpedo as well as the submarine uh, unintentionally. And then you know, the steamship that we know. So Robert, without Robert Fulton, there'd be no Mark Twain. Without Robert Fulton, it'd be no Mark Twain. It's true. And without Robert and Fulton, there would be no whoever said damn the torpedoes. I don't know who that was. <laughs> damn the torpedoes full steam ahead, right? Yes. Because there would be no steam. The thing is, like, this is the first really huge advance in transportation technology that's not on land. So at 1803, the steam engine had sort of already started to be used for, for pushing around, I think, trains, right? Just starting to be a thing. The way that freight moved around in Europe was it used canals. So they'd hook up, they'd have canals that go between cities and canals that go between different parts of the, of the, of the different uh, provinces and stuff. And they'd walk a barge being pulled by an ox or a, a horse. Cause pulling something on water doesn't take a tremendous amount of, uh, of force. Right. Right. But if you want to move people back and forth up and down the river, a faster way to do it is with something that's steam powered and steam is always there. Unlike wind, for example, where are we going to get all this water from? So, yes, and uh, with that, you know, much faster cross-ocean travel started, and you started having, you know, more transit of people between each place. It lowered the cost altogether, and it was the first real big revolution in sort of worldwide travel. Yeah, too bad he screwed it up on the first try. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what you say. If your boat sinks in the River Seine, just try, try again. Yeah, uh, that old chestnut. Next up, August the 10th, 1966. Um, this is such a funny story. <laughs> Hear me out because it starts off rough. Ready? Okay. Convicted murderer. <laughs> All right. So convicted murderer. This guy's name was James French. Uh, and uh, oh, the French again. Yes. And uh, he was executed on this day on uh, August the 10th, 1966 in the electric chair for murdering his cellmate. So when discussing his pending execution with a reporter, this was his last words. It was like famous last words. He goes, yeah, yeah. he goes, hey, how's this for a headline? French fries. <laughs> well, I guess if you're looking into the abyss, yeah. to look into the abyss and sort of smile is one way to do it. It just reminds me yeah. of that scene from um, from the Ed Wood movie. Dr. Acula. <laughs> French yes, uh... fries. So anyway, uh, uh, our friend uh, James French over here, uh, he had killed a motorist that he had picked up hitchhiking in, uh, I think it was 1958, and he requested the death penalty at his trial. He was like, yep, just kill me. And he was given a life sentence instead. Not to be deterred, <laughs> in 1961, he, uh, he bought him his cellmate uh, a steak sandwich from the prison you know, cafeteria or canteen or whatever they call it. And then allowed him to go to breakfast. And when he came back, our good friend James French strangled him to death with a towel. Jeez, you think his cellmate would have thought something was yeah. funny when French said, hey, you want this sandwich? It's the last yeah. one. And then he, again, uh, he says, uh, yeah, can I have the death penalty? And this time they they, uh, they gave it to him. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, I guess you got to earn it the hard way. And that's the, that's the hard I, way. I, but Can geez. you imagine that meeting, though? It's like he wants the death penalty again. And I'm thinking we better give it to him. Otherwise, somebody else is going to get the right. death penalty. Who knows, who knows what he's going to do next? I wonder what non-death penalty inducing crime his cellmate Yeah, had. right. Like, it wouldn't suck for real if that guy was like, what are you in for? I murdered a hitchhiker. <laughs> and I wanted the death penalty. And that's why I'm here. But 
<laughs> I owe $325 in speeding tickets, you know, <laughs> or something yeah. like that. I, ru- I ripped you the know? tag off my mattress and... <laughs> you know, here's me thinking efficiently, okay? They should have just had French work on death row. You know what I mean? Like, if he's yeah, if he's right. going to be killing prisoners anyway, just have him, you know, hanging right. out there. Yeah. Uh, hey, you my new cellmate? Yeah. <laughs> you like steak sandwiches? <laughs> <laughs> I do. How okay. do you feel about... French fries. <laughs> How do you feel about French fries? Let's uh, let's pop, let's pop over to the eleventh. Oh, all right, August eleventh, nineteen eighty four. During a radio voice test, U.S. President uh, Ronald Reagan jokes that he signed legislation that would outlaw Russia forever, and we begin bombing in five minutes. Oh, now. Ronald Reagan, you're such a whip. You're now, so funny. Haha, <laughs> ha, ho, ho, right? Being funny and flip and and all that is great, except like. That was broadcast on the radio and it was released and it leaked and it made its way to Russia and to the United Nations. And it caused an international incident because you don't accidentally threaten to, you know, jokingly threaten to nuke another world power over mass media. Yeah. Um, How do you how do you say you motherfucker in Russian? (laughs) Right. I think it was probably Brezhnev in 1984. So it must have been like, he said what? (laughs) How many minutes? <laughs> Dimitri, are we going to be okay? But yeah, that it brought like condemnation and, and all kinds of screaming and yelling at the UN about <laughs> about doing not doing stupid stuff like that. Like, you never know. Like, again, it doesn't matter where in power you are. There's bound to be some like sort of crackpot person who can be one guy that goes, he said, start bombing in five minutes. Yeah. Start the timer, you know. And Now, I know that's not what this cliche entails, but it can there's a cliche that, you know, spread out during World War II, loose lips sink ships. Right. And that's kind of where this goes. I mean, I know, you know, Ronnie was just trying to like get a couple of chuckles out of people and stuff like that. But, yeah, your little mealy mouth little joke almost got a lot of people in, yeah. killed. You know, if well, you think again, about there's it. like a, 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 it's like the fire in the theater argument about the First Amendment. Like you have to be careful when you're somebody like the president of the United States, what you say, because everything you say is on record. And it, you could think of it as being like, hey, this is our policy. Did he just declare war on the Soviet Union? Can right. he do that? You know, and, and laughed about it and yeah. then laughed about it. Right. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I, I like I like he didn't really learn his lesson. And in 1986, he said he was going to skull f- Kim Jong-il. <laughs> oh, I'm going to give him a good rogering. I am <laughs> going to poke out his eye and make love to his skull. <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, moving right along, maybe Reagan wouldn't have gotten so much trouble if this hadn't happened uh, many years earlier. So on August the 12th of 1877, your friend and mine, Thomas Edison, makes the first audio recording. It was like a, a basically, it was like a spindle with, with kind of like aluminum foil yeah. and, and a needle on it. And yep. and he spun it by hand and he recorded his voice and recorded him not singing, because I guess he wasn't a very good singer, but he was saying the poem of Mary Had a Little Lamb. Huh. And it's the, the sound quality is terrible, but... Here's something funny. I have that audio recording on MP3. Wow. So we've come like complete full circle. We've gone from the spindle 
then to uh, record players, God forbid, 8-track tapes, uh, audio cassettes, CDs, and then MP3s and streaming services. But I do have the recording of Thomas Edison as an MP3. I'm going to play it for you right now. Insert clip here. So there it is. That is the very first audio recording. Huh, that's amazing. I wonder how many years later it was before the medium changed to the wax cylinder recording technology, which is, I, I guess it's a little bit better and more durable. There was probably some like weird hipsters that were like, no, I think the foil recording sounds so much <laughs> better. It's got such a warmer sound to it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, sure. Oh, you and your wax. Wax can be broken, but foil is forever. <laughs> listen, listen. I've got, I've got Thomas Edison reading Mary Had a Little Lamb in Foil, and I've also got, you know, Kaiser Wilhelm talking to the German people on a wax cylinder. Which one is more realistic? <laughs> and I've got Nikolai Tesla singing The Man from Nantucket. <laughs> hey, how'd you like a steak sandwich? <laughs> That's really the beginning of, of re the recorded human voice. That's really a momentous. I mean, I, just to see the expansion of that technology into where we are today is it's it's mind blowing. Yeah, we were just at a flea market a couple of weeks ago. I think I mentioned it too, and they uh, they actually had player piano rolls yep. for sale, and that was like prior to recordings. You know, that was the way music got passed around. I guess you could say. If you had a player piano, yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. If you couldn't afford the piano player for your like Western saloon, right, right. I just put it in the automatic. You know, prior to recording, like recording music, that's how they would judge the popularity of music was right. by the sales of the sheet music. Right, right, right. And it's crazy to think here we are. I'm sitting in my little office over here, in front of my computer with a microphone in front of me. You are a hundred almost exactly 100 miles away from me. Right. And we're recording this podcast. Yep. Which goes out over the internet and people download from wherever they are happen to be. And it wasn't even, you know, big picture that long ago. What's that, 100 140, a little over 140 years ago, right. where this guy is cranking something by hand to record Mary Had a Little Lamb. And think about how, like, impressed everybody was at that point. Like, whoa! I know. They must have been like, that's amazing. He's like, on. Oh, Hold on, if, if I play with the speed of the recording, when I play it back a little bit, I sound like a chipmunk. Yeah, right? and if I, and play, if it I play it backwards, backwards the, the satanic, <laughs> I know where I was going with that, right? Yeah. The satanic messages. Oh, no. <laughs> Ironically enough, if, if Edison had known that in 1991, on the same date, August 12th, that Metallica released the Black Album, <laughs> he probably would have just smashed up the device right there on his desk. And it's better nobody knows about this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> There was another musical group that got really, really famous, uh, thanks to our friend Thomas Edison. Were they what bigger than Edison? They, they were certainly, they were way bigger than Edison. Wow. As in, fa in fact, they were, were they bigger, bigger than, than Mary's Lamb? They were bigger than you know who. <laughs> what do you have for August the 13th? August the 13th, 1966. As we've discussed before, John Lennon in an interview says, Ooh. Seems like the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. And more, more popular than Jesus. Yeah. <clears throat> more popular than Jesus. And radio station KLUE in Longview, Texas, <clears throat> organizes a Beatles bonfire. So the next day, 
uh, as they're preparing for their Beatles bonfire. <laughs> the station is struck by lightning and was temporarily shut down because it blew up all their amplifiers <laughs> and knocked the station manager unconscious and sent him to the hospital. Thus going to prove that one, God has a sense of humor and two, he likes the Beatles. Yeah, he really liked the Revolver album, apparently, right? Yep. God was like, hold on, hold on. Next year they're doing they're gonna do the Sergeant Peppers thing. You gotta gotta you gotta right. stick this one out. You gotta I'm, you get yeah. I'm omnipotent and omnipresent, therefore I've already heard that album, and you're gonna love it when it comes out in a year. And wait till you play that one backwards. Oh, <laughs> oh you think going backwards with Mary had a little lamb brought some devil music out of things, but <laughs> I wonder if they actually followed through with the bonfire, or they did like an I'm sorry bonfire and just burned wood. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. No, I'm I'm going to guess that they did go through with the bonfire. Matter of fact, I'm almost positive they did. It, it's one of those things there where if something bad happens to people you don't like or a group, I should say, a group that you don't like, it's God's punishment. But if it happens to you, it's just it's happenstance. Mm. So I'm pretty sure whenever it struck them by lightning, they didn't take it as a sign. You know, they were like, oh, well, what do you know? Well, it is Texas, too, so. Yep. If I was the station manager, the guy that came up with this idea, and that happened, I'm pretty sure my first thought would be like, all right, so we're going to burn some Dave Clark 5 records. <laughs> <laughs> just as a lead-in, just to see what happens. Just to, just to see what happens. All right, Herman's Hermits, they got to go. And, and then he gets like a sweater shock, and he's like, all right, all right, that's it. That's, that's it. Enough. No more. None of this. Pat Boone? Can we, can we burn up some Pat Boone? <laughs> it's so uh, funny. Whenever we're doing the research for the show, we could do... This week was way better in Beatles history. We, we could do it. We definitely like, could. There's a Beatles thing every single week, yeah. Every single day of every single week, yeah. For a band that was really realistically only around for like five, six years, they yeah they packed a lot in. All right, Jeff, coming up on August the 14th, I am taking one for the team on this one. I know you are because I legendarily have. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of this. Um, but. I do recognize Americana, even though it's a, a, a British film, but whatever. It's a British Kana. Yep, British Kana, but it, it is an American legacy as well. But on this day, August the 14th, 1975, the Rocky Horror Picture Show debuts in theaters. Yeah, it didn't do and well when it first came out. No, it actually did very poorly. It was in and out of theaters so fast. Uh, I don't even think the popcorn had a chance to get stale. Yeah, it was in and out of there. It did very poorly. And then what happened was, you know, I don't know if they still have many. There used to be one over here, but um, I don't know if they have any up your way. Second run movie theaters? Nah, those don't really exist anymore up here. Uh, Well, actually, they don't need to now because it's all streaming services and stuff. But for a long time, there would be, like, movies would run in the theaters, and then there would be these secondary, second-run movie theaters where you could see slightly older movies for much cheaper, yeah. you know? Yeah, and sometimes Grindhouse stuff and, like, yeah. weird indie films that didn't have big dis- distribution. So they were all, like, little independent theaters that used to be able to show show films. Yeah, this is one and of the then, ones that, that ended up... Right, and then what happened was, like, every Saturday at midnight... You could get in for a dollar, and they would be showing the Rocky Horror Picture Show just because it was something they could, you know, they had. It's not like the distribution companies were asking for their, you know, their canisters back. Right. It's not like they were in a rush to get them back. This one movie theater just started showing the Rocky Horror Picture Show Saturday nights at midnight, and, you know, teenagers would go in and 
spend their dollar and just laugh at this horrible movie. It started just getting more and more out of control. Like people started making jokes and that's how the callback lines you know, started, you know, the famous scene whenever uh, Susan Sarandon is up in the, you know, during the touch a touch a touch me scene, you know, people would run up to the screen and start fondling the screen and stuff like that. And it slowly evolved over time to what we now know as the Rocky Horror Picture Show with the shadow casting. Now, I first learned of this film on on uh, this old TV program called Night Flight that used to be on the USA Network. So that's yes. probably... 10 or 11 years old, maybe 12 or 13 at the the oldest, and they showed clips from it, and I was like, I don't know what this is, but this is really interesting. And then the first time I watched the film all the way through, Bill, was at your house. Yeah, it was like it was like when it first, I think. Yeah, it was like when it first became eligible to rent. I had rented it. Yep. Yeah, and I, I think I, I think we were fifteen. A little bit older because my first introduction to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, I was sixteen years old. Okay, and they showed it at SMU, which is now UMass Dartmouth. I remember when I watched it at your house. I was like, okay, this is this is okay. It's kind of boring, and yeah. I guess. It's an experience. It's something you have to go and do. It's a rite of passage. Every every teenager should become obsessed with Rocky well, Horror. Or you age into it. So yeah. I ended up watching it because they showed it on loop one Halloween. I want to say like 2013 or 2014 on one, I don't know, one of the cable stations I had. I know they used to show it on VH1 a lot. Yeah, it wasn't on a, it wasn't on one that had uh, commercials. And I, I was like, oh, I'll put it on. It's like a Saturday that's Halloween. I don't love this, but I'll, I'll stick it on anyway. And I think I was chatting with somebody while I was watching it. And I watched it. I was like, that was, that was pretty fun. And then I watched it again. And I was like, that was really funny. And then I watched it again. I'm like, I think this music is really good. And then I watched it again. And I was like, all right. I, I sort of get like what this movie kind of does now. When Meg, my daughter, was 12, we were talking about musicals because she was studying musicals in school. And I said, oh, did you ever see the Rocky Horror Picture Show? She said, no, what is that? And I said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll get it. Yeah. And I rented it. And I showed it to my, tw- my 12-year-old daughter. And she said, I don't know. If I'm supposed to watch this movie, Dad, and I was yeah. like, Father of the Year Award, yeah. <laughs> Father of the Year Award. I'm like, look, Ian had Grand Theft Auto three at seven. You're gonna yeah. get Rocky Horror Picture Show at twelve. Ultimately, we ended up buying the Blu-ray and buying the vinyl soundtrack, and it, it probably gets watched in my house like every two or three months. I took her to see it at one of the local cinemas here because it still tours. I mean, it still is shown. There's lots of uh, like groups that just do that. I know people in. Well, I know one person that's like in two or three different groups. So they'll do one show one weekend with one group and then go do another one with another. Yeah, it's it's insane the longevity and popularity of this movie, which which got popular for being a piece of crap movie. Like when we talked about Ed Wood's Play Night from Outer Space not too long ago, right? I think it's... Its reputation as being bad is is far more amplified than it actually is, and I think the film it, itself is is super fun and interesting and a lot of fun, a lot of pure joy to watch. So that's just me. I love that movie. Yeah, yeah. And, and famously, that was like, if not his first role, one of his first roles for Tim Curry. Yeah, who you know went on to become Tim Curry. Yeah, and Barry Bostwick too, and Susan yep. Sarandon, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Even and, Riff Raff, the guy that wrote it, he went yeah. on to be in Flash Gordon. Yeah, Richard O'Brien, future worst song ever nominee, the WWE's Land of a Thousand Dances. Uh, if you if you watch the music video, that's Richard O'Brien playing bass. 
Oh, God, really? Yeah. I will, I'll have to spool that up sometime. Be amazed. There was a sequel to Rocky Horror Picture Show called Shock Treatment. Yeah. And I know the, you know, the theater groups, like I said, that do Rocky Horror also do Shock Treatment. And do you know who's in Shock Treatment, like right at the beginning anyway? No, I've never seen it. I've only, I only remember the cover. Rick Mail. Rick Mail from uh, The Young oh, Ones. Wow, yeah. Young ones, huh? Yeah, he's in it. Yep. Riff Raff, Richard O'Brien, he actually wrote all the music, and yep. wrote the screenplay. Yeah, and I think it's his lips that sing the theme song, too. Well, sort of. He did the vocals for the song. That's him on the recording. But it was lip-synced <laughs> by Patricia Quinn, who played Magenta in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Fun movie. Maybe I'll watch that tonight, now that we've talked about it. Go load up those squirt guns. <laughs> and make some toast. And wrapping up the week on the 15th, what do you got? <laughs> I got two things. We're going to stick them together. August 15th, 1946, the Dumont Television Network, the very first television network, goes on the air. Oh. And the Dumont Network was primarily designed to sell Dumont television. So Dumont was a manufacturer of CRT tubes and the other tubes that go into the TV box. Right. Okay? Most of the commercials on the Dumont Television Network were for... Dumont televisions and Dumont tubes. So they produced some TV shows, but nothing had a big budget because they were only working on what they had based on their manufacturing output and sales of TVs. Right. So that's 1946. That's the birth of television. So these devices were probably expensive, and the shows that were on them were probably like band concerts and people singing and things that could be filmed and broadcast without sets, writers, lighting. <laughs> other things that are, that that would evolve into what we would come to know as television later. Hey, we got this TV network. What? Oh yeah, cool. What are, What are you gonna do? Shoo! Oh man, should have thought gonna, this one out a little bit. We're gonna We're gonna run some commercials for TVs. Yep. But in between that, we got to figure something out. So at, the, at at around the same time, CBS and ABC and NBC all sort of start up because they're not tied to hardware manufacturing, and because TV signals are standardized by the ITU and the FCC. Yep. Anybody can broadcast in that those frequencies and tune to them. So the signals are like they're hardware agnostic, is what we sort of say now. They grow and are able to expand because they can buy TVs from other manufacturers, and and those TVs can pick up signals from any place. And they not, don't have to support a network of hardware manufacturers. Yeah, and not just that. I mean, NBC, CBS, all of them, like had radio stations prior right. to that. So they, you know, they had a little expertise in the entertainment business. Yep. Not just uh, Dumont, it, like, it seemed like they were just winging it at that point. Right. Well, I mean, they're sort of inventing it as they go. They lasted about, what, 10 years, 10 or 12 years, Dumont did, and then they finally were like, that's it, we're out. Yep. They, they bankrupt. They couldn't afford to do research and development and still keep making TVs. The reason I bring up that there's two things, but you can see the evolution of how TV works. By 1948, only two years later, mm-hmm. on the same day, August 15th, the Capital Broadcasting System, or CBS, begins to broadcast a nightly news program a nationwide nightly news program. Oh, wow. And that's still, that show, the CBS Evening News is still on today. It's, that's the birth of, of sort of national news. Right. So, yeah. So that would technically be the longest running television program. Right. CBS Nightly News. Wow. Yep. Uh, and it wasn't just an adaptation of like the, the news that they did on the radio, although there was some crossover, yeah. but it was actually shot on a set with a guy at a desk. I don't know who their first, maybe Edward R. Murrow, maybe was their very first newscaster, the first right. TV newscaster. But that's that's where it began. So, yeah, I'm actually kind of curious as to like what kind of shows were on the like Dumont. Like, did they have like sitcoms and stuff like that? 
I think they did like some soap operas type stuff and they did like probably second run, not second run movies, but movies that they ended up buying licenses for that they oh, could okay. adapt and show. Plus, I'm sure they produced some of their own television programs. I just don't know what they would be dramas and other things. It's like there were still companies that produced programs that they would have bought. Like the Mercury Theater Company wasn't specifically owned by CBS, they but they sold content to CBS okay. or the Chevrolet, you know, Chevrolet would buy and sponsor programs on NBC. What they probably did was bought programs that were pre-built. That that's what was shown. So can, can you just imagine like the executives over at Dumont just like ripping their hair from the sides of their head because like CBS or ABC, whoever it was, was like showing my mother the car and they're getting like they're losing in the ratings. Right. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. The show's terrible. I think it was probably more along the lines of they're like they're watching like, you know, whatever the equivalent of Dragnet is in nineteen fifty two. And they're like, holy crap, that's a Philco TV in the background there. Darn it! You know, and it's yep. on the Dumont Network, whose whole advertising structure is built around selling Dumont TVs and Dumont TV parts. Right there is the lesson that nobody seems to learn ever in this country is the whole proprietary kind of a deal. Like the Betamax went out of business because it only worked with itself, yep. where um, VHS prospered because they, they licensed themselves out to other things and right. also porn um helped out <laughs> yeah i was, I was going to say there's a there's another component to what made vhs successful yeah porn <laughs> porn helped out a real lot and the well the same thing happened with with the dvd wars right. with the dvd wars it was dvd and divix two technologies that came out at the same time well, there's hd dvd too that oh uh, that was blu-ray yeah that right? yeah and, but on all three things with vhs HDTV, Blu-ray, you know, DVD, DivX, and all that. All three of those is hilarious that it came down to which format the porn industry was going to roll with. <laughs> yep, and that's what you get. What are the tapes that I can get the cheapest and the highest amount? Yep. VHS, done. Yep, let that be a lesson to you. Right. All right, let's go on to the celebrity birthdays. So August the 9th, 1968, Generation X Sci-Fi Girl Crush of the Year Award goes to Gillian Anderson from the X-Files, or most famously from the X-Files. Yes, most famously from the X-Files. She's also in a great uh, adaptation of one of my favorite books, too. She's in. She plays Lily Bart in uh, an adaptation of The House of Mirth, which is really good. Have not seen... So we were talking about anthology shows a couple of weeks ago, and X Files wasn't really so much an anthology show as it was more like a monster of the week show. But it, it was cool. I've only seen a little bit of it, but I just remember it being insanely popular. It was super popular. It made Saturday night or Sunday night TV like the, the stuff to watch, and it it did sort of start out as a monster of the week show, a lot like I don't know if you remember Project Blue Book from when we were kids. No. Or Kolchak the Night Stalker, but those are two shows that this has some definite uh, DNA from. Yep. And and it evolved a consistent mythology. Okay. That while there weren't, it wasn't a co coherent long storyline. There were elements that had a coherent long storyline that impacted all of the stories, like Mulder's search for his sister. That was David Duchovny's character, and Gillian Anderson's sort of past history with her father in the military. The characters evolved over time, unlike Three's Company, where you could just like pick up any episode anywhere along the ways, and the characters are pretty much all the same. And there was no like Gil monster that lived in the sewers in Three's Company, which says you. Was, yeah. 
Yeah. Though there was only Larry Dallas who lived upstairs. All right, so let's go over to the 10th. What do you got? August 10th, 1970, enigmatic musician Jeff Mangum is born. And Jeff Mangum, if you do not know who he is, is the... He's so enigmatic, I don't know who he is. He is the lead singer and creative force behind a band called Neutral Milk Hotel, who put out two very interesting records, the second being the one that most people know more than any any other called In an Airplane Over the Sea, which is a fantastic phenomenal like indie rock record from 1994 or so you know i don't even remember what the category was remember i told you i'm doing that album of the day thing yep i accidentally listened to neutral milk hotel (laughs) i don't remember why but i remember listening to them i love the record in the airplane over the sea i like love 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 it love love it love it learn to play some of it on guitar and sing along with it and it's it's one of those weird ones that came to me via my son who said, hey, you like weird music, Dad, and <laughs> played it in the car when he was learning to drive. And I was like, what is this? And he said, it's Neutral Milk Hotel. I'm like, I remember not liking them in 1994. So <laughs> I like them now. After that record came out and they toured, they kind of just vanished. Jeff Mangum just disappeared, and they did one reunion tour in like 2013 or something and just played songs off of their first two records, and then they vanished again. He doesn't do much except, I guess, hang around at home and watch TV. I guess you realize, like, well, I'm never going to do anything better than this. Time to go home. Kind of like the well, like the police, you know, get out right when you're on top. Right. You know, now things just had a 25 hour orgasm. <laughs> We're never doing another record with him again. <laughs> All right. So moving on, August the 11th, 1894, a man by the name of Frank Epperson. And everybody will know and love Frank Epperson when they realize that he is the guy that invented the popsicle. Oh, hey, look at that. Yep. In, uh, in 1923, he accidentally left a glass of soda with a mixing stick on a windowsill overnight, and it froze, and he was like, Eureka! And that's that was how the first Popsicle was made. He originally called it the Epsicle. I knew it was going to be something like that. I've actually figured it would be something along, the, since it's 1894, something along the lines of, like, Phineas T. Freezemouth's fabulous snow <laughs> juice, you know? <laughs> Epsicle is closer to Popsicle. At least that's sort of normal. Yep. I, I honestly think my mom used to buy Popsicles just because I think that's a parenting strategy. You know that'll keep the kids shut up for a couple of minutes anyway. Yes. Here, go numb your brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know who the madman was who invented the double Popsicle that you have to bang on the counter to separate. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? Why are those a thing? Because sometimes you need to share, Bill. Then get two. <laughs> and you have two brothers you know damn well you can't share that properly because there's always going to be one big half that's true i mean you can also think of it as like well this always makes the, the box of popsicles last twice as long if we only eat half of one each i'm not buying it i know i know how <laughs> my mom thinks all right let's get on to the 12th august 12th of 1992 carla delvine model actress and eyebrow enthusiast is <laughs> leashed upon the world unleashed upon the world I had no idea who you were talking about until you said eyebrows. And I'm like, oh, I know who that is. Yeah. Uh, and, and those of you out there may know her from such films as Paper Towns, which I saw in the movies with my daughter and I'm still baffled by, but it's based on her favorite book. And Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets, which is the worst science fiction movie I've ever seen. That is going. And- if, if that had music in it, that would be the next Rocky Horror just, it was you know, just, it was terrible. By the by, the way, Rocky Horror evolved. Yeah, I I've never heard anybody. You're the only person I know that that actually saw it. To tell you the truth, 
and never have so much good quality source material and high caliber talent been involved in something that came out so mediocre. <laughs> Ugh, what a wasted opportunity that was. So she played Lorelai and to the female lead of this sort of two-person spy story. It's just not good. Don't watch it. I have a poster of it. Sometimes I look at the poster and I go, I saw that movie. You, I, I was like saying something about the movie. You're like, oh, Bill, no. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Dead up, no. Save yourself! Go on without me! <laughs> Don't do it. Just watch the fifth element again. <laughs> All right. And then popping over to August the 13th, 1959. Everybody's favorite little redhead, Danny Butaducci. Danny Butaducci is like the template for horrific child star story. Yeah. Yep. Yep. He got his fame playing Danny Partridge on The Partridge Family, yeah. the most wholesome TV show of the 1970s. It made even the Brady Bunch look risque at times. <laughs> Turns out, none of that wholesomeness seemed to rub off on him. He, he got he had a career later. Never made the transition into film, but definitely did like the DJ thing for years and years and years. Yep. Last Thanksgiving break, I was like painting in my bedroom, and I just like set up YouTube to just run. And I ended up, like, watching this documentary on the Partridge family. And apparently Danny Butaducci didn't grow into being a massive prick. He was a massive prick when he was a kid. Yes. Like, apparently nobody liked working with him on that show because yeah. he was a jerk uh, yeah. and all that. Kind of a jerk from birth, yeah. Yeah. That's the way I and, read him, too. And one of my favorite stories about him was... He met this girl like at a bar or something like that. And he was trying to get in her pants. And she was like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that until I get married. So he married her and slept with her that night. Yeah, I remember the end of that story where she woke up the next morning and goes, who are you again? And she goes, my name is Mrs. Danny Bonaducci. <laughs> they were married for a long time, yeah. those two. Yeah, they did. They actually did stay together for a while. I mean, not forever, but. Forever's a pretty long time. Yeah, I mean, uh, longer than some Hollywood mar marriages. All right, moving on the 14th. August 14th, 1950. American cartoonist Gary Larson, best known for single-panel far-side cartoons, which are still the funniest newspaper cartoons ever made, oh, yeah. if you ask me. Not long ago, maybe uh, two years, a year and a half, something like that, he came out of retirement for a bit and, and had a website where he was putting up a cartoon now and then, but that seems to have dried up. Uh -huh. His stuff is always like borderline surreal and very, very funny. Do you have a favorite you can describe to me? Uh, it's still on my fridge <laughs> as a postcard. And it's it's a bear and it's holding two skulls with two like hunter's hats on. And then there's two little bear cubs sitting there. The bear says, all right, one more time. And then it's straight to bed. Hey, do you think there are any bears in that cave? <laughs> <laughs> and he says, the bear's doing a puppet show with the two hunters' dead heads. <laughs> That's my favorite one. I remember my friend Scott turned me on to it. He had like a book of it, and I had never heard of it. And the very first one is still my favorite to this day. It was a three-panel cartoon, and so it w but it was like split in half with the third panel being a circle in the middle, okay, if you can visualize yeah. it. So the circle in the middle was a telephone operator. The right. top panel was a man like on the phone. And in the bottom panel was a broken window with a chair, like, flipped. And the operator was saying, hi, will you accept the charges from... <laughs> he spawned a lot of, I don't want to say imitators, but 
Right. Uh, a lot of that single panel surrealistic. Yeah. yeah, I think the one the one I remember is like I think Bizarro, right? Is the one that the one that kind of came out in his uh, came out of his shadow and then stuck around for decades or so after he stopped doing cartoons. Right, and then uh, Non Sequitur was another one. Non Well, Non Sequitur was like fifty fifty. There was like returning characters, but there was also yeah. the uh, the one panel stuff. Well, we miss you, Gary Larson. And then wrapping up the the week, August the fifteenth, nineteen seventy two, Boston's own Ben Affleck. Oh, my second favorite Batman. You know, whenever they cast him as Batman, like the internet just like collectively groaned. I thought he was fine as Batman. I was great. They, he was the best part of that movie. Yeah, they weren't great movies, but he was a good Batman. Yeah. I think he's got like a bad rap just because he's he's been in some clunkers like Pearl Harbor and... Jiggly. Yeah, Jiggly or whatever. <laughs> no, the one I was thinking of, there, um, The Dirty Dozen in Outer Space. The hell's the name of that movie? Armageddon. So he's been in some clunkers, so he gets like a bad reputation, but goodwill hunting, and I think his reputation precedes him, sort of thing. He's a good actor. It's just that yeah, it's just he's that he's done such crap. Yeah. He's like our it's like our generation's Michael Caine. <laughs> I, I like him. I think he's good in just about anything he's in. Even if the I don't particularly love the movies. I liked him in Mall Rats and I don't love Mall Rats right. and I liked him in Dogma. I don't love Dogma either, but I thought he was really good in both of those right. and everything I've seen him in. I even liked him as Daredevil. Go figure. At one time he was married to Jennifer Lopez. Yeah, he, and he, they like divorced, but then they like got to back together at one point, I think, or whatever. Something like that. Yeah. Jennifer Lopez, I am actually surprised that she has not popped up. And not to say that she won't pop up in The Worst Song Ever. All right. Jeff, when I called you up this week, I was like, hey, what do we got for Worst Song Ever? You're like, oh, I'm on it. and uh, I'm on it. I got something. Yeah. yeah. I actually... I had never heard of this until you brought it to my attention. And boy, am I glad you did. And I had never heard of this until I brought it to my attention. Oh, so really? how do you think I feel? Okay. Uh, Tell us all about it, Jeff. All right. As the world knows, I love weird outsider music. I love the Shags, which we've talked about on this show. Yeah. And I love Crispin Helly and Glover and all these other weird, weird one-off records and weird sometimes novelty songs. Stuff that's from the outside. Frank Zappa a little bit. Captain Beefheart a lot. Right. All these things. So in <laughs> 1968, a guy named Legendary Stardust Cowboy is loosed upon the world. And Legendary Stardust Cowboy is hard to define. Think a guy in yellow leather chaps and a 10-gallon hat and a fringy coat playing with one other person, T-Bone Burnett, on a small, small drum kit, shrieking madly. <laughs> Well, out of time with anything that resembles timed drumming for two and a half minutes on average per song. And that is Legendary Stardust Cowboy. The song I bring up as the worst song ever is actually listed as the worst song ever released on a major label. Oh, wow. It's his first single called Paralyzed, which was printed 500 copies or something, was typically referred to as, what the hell is this? That's kind of like what the reviews of this silly song are. (laughs) Play a clip of uh, Paralyzed. Goodness, Jeff. So, wow. I, as as a full admission here in the interim, 
since hearing the song for the first time, I have listened to this song approximately 250 times since yesterday. And every time I listen to it, I like it a little bit more because it's so strange and so weird. <laughs> Tendrils of this that are like almost early punk, like early pure ubu. And there's weird like garage rock stuff that falls into it because it's gibberish, kind of like Louis Louie. You can hear like Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention and all this other crazy craziness in there. And technically, it's still a weird-ass country song. It just does a million things for me. As I'm looking over here, I'm, I'm looking at some of the notes for, for the show. Here's something that makes perfect sense to me. Legendary Stardust uh, comes out to say LSD, which was really popular <laughs> at the so. time. Yeah, Could have possibly been a major influence on this guy's style. Yes, LSD Cowboy, yes. Definitely out there. His real name is Norman Odom, and he still plays. Oh, wow. Yeah. A lot of the weird, like, rockabilly or psycho rockabilly, psychobilly stuff that you see that still kind of comes around today, like the Reverend Horton Heat and some other stuff, they all owe Legendary Stardust Cowboy, or the ledge as he's known to his fans. Yeah, John Peel, legendary, uh, you know, record producer over in England, he used to have, you know, a radio show. Yeah, Paralyzed was actually very popular on that show. For something that's, like, outsider, this kind of, like, wraps back around to Rocky Horror. You know, where the Rocky Horror Picture Show is not a good movie, but it just became very popular for being as weird as it is. And I think that's where stuff like LSD Cowboy over here and the Shags and your other guy that you keep bringing up there, Captain Beefheart, all fall into that category where, and also like one of my favorites there, Julian Cope. Right. You know, where they just have this like following who just love how weird these people are. Right. You know, anybody can enjoy the Beatles, but, it, you know, sometimes you just got to step out of that little box, you know? Well, again, it's one of those, like, it's it depends on what you define as being, as enjoying something. Sometimes you can enjoy things that are super spicy. Like, we were talking about ghost peppers earlier before the show was yep. recording, right? I don't typically love eating super hot things, but I like those every now and then in, in yep. food. Because it's a different sensation. So hearing something like Paralyzed or, or any of his other weird, <laughs> trust me, all of his songs are strange. Yep. Any of his other weird songs, it's that same kind of like, yeah, I'm not going to sing along with this because you can't, <laughs> but I can I can listen to it and like appreciate just how how much weirdness there is in it, and and just in and of itself that makes it interesting for me, and and horrible for everybody and else. <laughs> All right, that's uh, gonna be the end of the show, but I do have my award winning and always very well received trivia question. The trivia question was. A chef's hat, which is also known as a toque, has ridges around the top, and those ridges are specific. There is a specific amount, and they stand for something. How many, and what do they mean? There are seven ridges on the top of a toque, and they stand for the dwarfs that lived with Snow White. All right, for starters, in the story, there was 10 dwarves. And you're only off by a magnitude because there are 100 ridges in a chef's hat. And That's a lot of dwarves. Yeah. And they are representative of the 100 ways to cook an egg. Well, there you go. Yeah. I guess I didn't work in the right kind of restaurant to know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A hundred one hundred ways to cook an egg. Yep, there's a, a yeah. Allegedly, there's a hundred ways to cook an egg, and that's what the one hundred ridges in a chef's toque representative of. So now you know. Now, whenever you pick up Chef Boy ID in a can, you can look at it and say, "Guess what, guys?" And they no gonna, eggs were harmed in the making of this <laughs> can of spaghettios. Yes. Probably not. I'm gonna guess no. 
Anyway, that is going to be a wrap for the show. We will see you guys back here in approximately seven days. So say goodnight, Jeff. Uh, goodnight, Jeff. <laughs> and goodnight, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibly or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends. Maybe they need to learn how to spell potato.